Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Dr. Robert Herreri, an accomplished surgeon, biomedical scientist, and serial entrepreneur in two technology sectors, biomedicine and aerospace. He is currently the chairman, founder, and CEO of Cellularity. We are lucky to have him in this battle against uh, this virus. Uh, in addition, he's got just such a, a fascinating background in different areas. He's an, one of the finest entrepreneurs uh, you would ever meet. And um, I'll let him talk about his, his background, and, and then we'll ask questions about what's going on now and, and into the future. So without further ado, Bob, take it away. Jim, uh, thank you so much. I, I, I can't uh, express uh, any more directly my gratitude to you over the years for always including me in these great events. And, I, and I'm particularly honored that, um, that Frank uh, has been part of this introduction. Uh, I've, I've admired what he, his career and the work he's done for so long. So thank you for setting this up. Um, you know, Frank, I think set the stage. We are facing unprecedented uh, challenges today that, that none of us even had, I think, a, a sense of how deeply they could impact our day-to-day life uh, than, a, than a, a pandemic like COVID-19. Uh, the, um, the truth is I've arrived here in this COVID-19 response um, in, in somewhat of a, a unique and circuitous way, but I'll give you a little bit of my background just for context. So um, I'm an engineer by undergraduate training. I, I trained at Columbia in New York. Uh, and then after a brief stint um, uh, 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 as a pilot, I wound up um, going to, to med school at Cornell, where I did my MD and PhD, fell in love with, with surgery and entrepreneurship, and um, was very fortunate to, uh, to work as, as a, a neurosurgeon and neurosurgical scientist focused on traumatic brain injury and the biology of um, post-traumatic inflammatory events. I was fortunate to be part of a team that was involved in discovering tumor necrosis factor, um, part of a group that began to understand that after a traumatic event, the cascade of changes that occurred to the vascular system were driven by our immune system and developed a deep appreciation for uh, how understanding and the ability to control the immune system would play a very important role in the diseases I was interested in, like traumatic brain injury, uh, stroke, et cetera. Um, So if you go back to the late 80s, early 90s, as a surgeon scientist, um, uh, being immersed in immunology, uh, that occurred coincident with the discovery of stem cells as a research platform. And... uh, although I will admit to you, I probably slept through a lot of the embryology lectures in medical school, I was fascinated by a couple of unique observations. Um, one, that the, the, the in utero environment, um, the gestational environment has some unique, remarkable um, uh, potential for repairing things that get damaged. Uh, and then the second thing was that the 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 process of generating a developing fetus is a is a is an engineering and assembly process and 
it is driven by cells and chemical factors uh, which arise in this really kind of alien looking organ called the placenta. And I became fascinated that uh, the placenta was something that we got our hands on every day in huge numbers, um, but generally we disposed of it as this as this horrific waste material when we wanted to get out of our get out of our sites as, as quickly as possible. And I, I it intrigued me that this waste material might uh, might in fact uh, harbor some really valuable things like uh, like stem cells, like biological materials, and so on. So at the dawn of stem cells, when everybody thought we were going to get them from discarded embryos uh, or from the byproducts of, a, of an abortion, uh, I, saw, I saw that sitting right in front of us was potentially an ideal alternative that would bypass a lot of the ethical and moral controversy, um, had the potential to be qualified very early on, even before birth, you can qualify the parental lineages and so on for for underlying phenotypic or genomic characteristics that might be a disqualifier. Um, and since hospitals were paying to get rid of this stuff, I said, you know what, this is an economical uh, uh, windfall for anybody who could productize things from this leftover waste material. So. Um, back in the, uh, in the 90s, the mid-90s, uh, while I was still a faculty surgeon at Cornell, I, um, I began to explore whether or not the placenta did more than just serve as a vascular interface between the maternal and the fetal system. The, um, in medical school, I was kind of taught that the placenta's job was to connect the developing fetus to the maternal circulation that's kind of a unidimensional function. That didn't, that didn't um, uh, settle with me very well. And I, I often give my, uh, my oldest daughter credit for the epiphany, but when, when I was a, um, a young surgeon, my, uh, my, first, my first child was in utero, and I got to go down and look at the ultrasound in the first trimester, and for the first time it dawned on me that although she was a peanut-sized embryo, the placenta was already a big organ. And remember, I was an engineer to start off with. Um, if it was just an interface, you would assume the placenta and, and embryo would develop at the same rate. The fact that the placenta was already big suggested to me that it was a governor of embryogenesis and ultimately fetogenesis. And if that was the case, why? So um, uh, at a time when, when uh, I saw underlying problems with deriving cells from embryos or byproducts of abortion, um, I realized that in this country alone, 4 million placentas um, are incinerated and disposed of after birth. Wouldn't that be a great raw material to find the products that ultimately might be therapeutically valuable? <clears throat> so that gave rise to, <clears throat> to my leaving Cornell and starting a company with the sole objective of um, under control, very controlled conditions procuring the placenta after birth under full informed consent with great medical uh, data around the paternal history, the, the history of the birth and so on, um, and, then, and then explore the organ to see whether in fact we could recover populations of stem cells that would be useful for different therapeutic purposes. A lot of this came on the heels of work we did around the hematopoietic stem cells that could be recovered in cord blood and placenta, but I was convinced that if you found 
hematopoietic progenitor stem cells in the, in, the, um, uh, in the cord blood, they had to come from somewhere. And the place they had to come from was the placenta itself. And so early in 2000, 2001, uh, we discovered that the placenta was in fact um, nature's stem cell factory. It served as a bioreactor. And as a bioreactor, um, cells are expanded and propagate and differentiate. And then they traffic through the circulation into the developing fetus. And I said, wow, isn't that a great, great place to uh, identify large qu uh, quantities of high quality cells that I could potentially turn into a, a therapeutic product. And so it solved a lot of my uh, fundamental requirements for developing cell therapies. Number one, um, the cells were good. Number two, this, the, the, uh, uh, the process of recovering them was relatively straightforward. Uh, it was abundantly available and the economics were attractive. So that got us into the, um, into the viewfinder of a developing biotech company called Celgene. Celgene merged us into them back in the end of 2002, and we became the cell therapy division of Celgene. And that company, as you know, was one of the great uh, success stories in, in biotechnology, rising to um, over a $100 billion market cap at one point, uh, and, um, and permitting me to invest heavily in the development of technologies using living cells. So that got me to where I am today. Uh, a little over two and a half years ago, I spun the cell therapy division of Celgene out into a private company called Cellularity, um, capitalized that business. And today, Cellularity is one of the largest human cellular medicine and functional regeneration companies. And on the heels of work we're doing with some unique placental cells, we got ourselves into the fight against COVID with some very exciting technologies. Thank you for that. That is fascinating, uh, Bob. So tell us, you know, bring us up to date, you know, and there's so much more you could have covered. So I appreciate you keeping it relatively short because your background is super fascinating. So bring us up to date. Talk to us about what, what's on everyone's mind, which is natural killer cells and the fight against this, this terrible, terrible virus. So um, I think all of us, when coronavirus COVID-19 first kind of got into the vernacular, um, our, our instinctive response is to think of this as a viral illness like other viral illnesses. Um, and because the early reports were that patients were developing these very serious pneumonias, a lot of us um, uh, thought of this almost as an, ana an analog or, or, or an analogy to influenza virus. And so um, that was scary in a lot of ways because no one wants to get pneumonia, um, but it wasn't nearly as scary as it turned out to be when we recognized that, that the pulmonary complications of coronavirus infection, this SARS-CoV-2 uh, viral infection was far worse than just um, a, a localized infectious process in the lung. Um, and early on, I was very, very uh, suspicious that this wasn't acting like a traditional respiratory viral infection, that it was acting much more like an immunotoxic viral infection. In fact, you, you mentioned my tweets before um, uh, when we were chatting. Um, in some of my Twitter uh, comments, Many weeks ago, I, uh, I said, you know, this virus 
behaves almost more like HIV than it does influenza. Um, I was seeing evidence early on that, that this virus was having a very destructive effect um, on the immune system and that, and that not only was it uh, creating a response from the immune system that in and of itself was, was highly threatening, the, what we call the, the cytokine storm, which as you know is a hyperimmune reaction where factors are released that damage blood vessels and affect blood pressure and cardiovascular function and pulmonary function. Um, but, but we were also seeing that, um, uh, that we were knocking out, this virus was knocking out functional parts of the immune system necessary to respond to the virus. So um, where I think we're learning a lot and it's gonna be very helpful in the way we design responses um, is I think we now recognize that this virus is directly toxic to elements of the innate and adaptive immune system that are necessary to defend against the virus. Now take into consideration the following. What do we know? We know that this is a very transmissible virus. It gets around, okay? It's airborne, it's stable on surfaces for a period of time. You can infect yourself by getting a large inoculum of material inhaled, but you can also infect yourself by touching a contaminated surface, touching your face, and then, and then the conditions on your face promote survival of the virus. And I actually believe that transmission through the eyes uh, down the tear duct into the back of the nasopharynx plays, a, plays an important role in that initial infectious process. Um, but what we know is that 95% of people who get infected um, don't get too badly ill. They're not horribly sick. Um, many people get infected and don't have a, um, a very serious course. A lot of people probably have gotten this and thought that they had kind of a low-grade flu or the, or the common cold. Um, but it's a small percentage of people who really do get sick. That 5% that represent the majority of patients who wind up going for supportive care in a hospital, um, they represent a difference between the general population and the more susceptible. And what is the difference between those two populations? Well, it, it's my belief and from everything we've seen that the difference really lies in differences in the immune system of these, of these individuals. Um, so here's some of the data that, that uh, I've been uh, made aware of from my colleagues at the different medical centers in, uh, in New Jersey and New York and elsewhere. Uh, for every 100 patients who come to the emergency room um, uh, because of the symptoms they believe are COVID, uh, roughly 80% are, are sent home because they're not ill enough um, and they don't have a medical need for being hospitalized. Uh, the 20 that are, are hospitalized, um, five, four or five, perhaps at worst six of those wind up requiring intensive care. And of that intensive care population, a smaller fraction wind up requiring ventilatory support. Now, the data that has come out from studying these patients 
is, is to me compelling because it's done a couple of things. It's agreed with data from the SARS outbreak of around 20 years ago, where patients who did poorly uh, when, infected by, when infected with SARS, the SARS virus, the original SARS coronavirus, um, those, the common denominator for bad outcome appeared to be a decline in the number and function of natural killer cells and T cells. This, in this particular pandemic, data was published in March that showed a similar observation, that the common denominator of patients doing poorly was something was happening to their natural killer cells and their cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that part of the innate and adaptive immune system is essential to being able to defend and combat against a viral infection. So the very fact that this virus is attacking those, those critical elements of the immune system, to me, was not just scary and intriguing, but it also pointed a very, very, very direct finger at where we should be aiming the development of our, uh, our treatment strategies. So, um, Jim, you know that for many, many years, I've argued that one of the potential valuable things about cellular medicine is that it's augmentative therapy, meaning that I can deliver cells wherever cells are defective or deficient in a system, whether those cells are pluripotent stem cells that are going to repair a knee after injury, or they are um, immune cells and precursors of immune cells, which can support immune function after a viral infection. That is an approach, I think, um, deserves a lot of attention, and already we see evidence that it's got great merit. So as you know, the concept of immunotherapy um, has already been grounded in successes in the treatment of cancer. So um, my, my friend Carl June uh, and other brilliant scientists recognize that um, in the fight against cancer, using the immune system as the best instrument to defeat cancer is not only not only scientifically and clinically logical, it's, it's easily deployable. That same success with immunotherapy, I believe can be translated into the treatment of infectious diseases. So let me tell you a couple of interesting observations about the placenta. Number one, um, abundantly available, right? They're all over the place. 130 million placentas are thrown away in the world every year. Um, number two, the placenta is nature's professional universal donor. What I mean by that is any placental cell can be put into a recipient that's not matched and they will not reject it. They will accept it and the cells can be tolerated and then cleared slowly over time without causing any, any significant acute toxicity. That universal donor concept is very important. And by the way, it's based on the biology of the placenta. Think about it. A mom carries a fetus and its placenta for nine months, doesn't reject it. It doesn't reject her. She's only 50% related genetically. Um, in surrogate pregnancy, a mom carries a fetus and its placenta for nine months. She's not even related. So th this universal donor, universal tolerability is fundamental to the placenta, and it's, it's something we use in designing the therapies. The second interesting observation is that and we made this, we made this, uh, uh, this observation and, and, and spoke about it at length. Um, 
although one in every thousand pregnant women has some form of cancer, the incidence of a mother transmitting cancer to the developing fetus is so rare that it constitutes a very small number of case reports, okay? It just doesn't happen very frequently. Now, why is it that the placenta serves as this defense against the transmission of infectious diseases and cancers? Um, we made that observation, and about 10 years ago, um, I tasked well, my research team, Dr. Shakwei Zhang and her, and her colleagues, let's go find out what's, what's unique about the placenta that provides that protection. And that team identified a novel placental natural killer cell which was incredibly uh, uh, capable of, of destroying cancer cells. And the mechanism by which it identifies and destroys cancer cells is to recognize a set of unique antigens called stress antigens, which get upregulated on cancer cells. So, so pre-programmed into these placental NK cells is the ability to recognize and target those stress antigens. Well, turns out, that those same stress antigens are also expressed on virally infected cells. And that was the connection that led us to exploring whether our placental NK cell that was in the clinic treating cancer, hematologic cancers, and, and, and soon solid tumors, that same product we believed would have merit in treating COVID-19. That led to us filing an IND with the FDA to start testing this in patients, which we are doing right now. Um, and more importantly, um, it, gave, it gave us uh, a basis to be looking at the observations like the ones I mentioned to you, that, uh, that NK cells appear to be defective in people who don't do well. So if that's the case, maybe giving supplemental NK cells can actually help support and get patients over this disease. And then the other observation, which is brain spanking new, um, which I'm very, very intrigued by, is that patients who get COVID-19 and recover um, apparently have a problem maintaining their antibody titers against COVID-19. So if you look at them 30 days, 60 days, 180 days after COVID infection, it appears that their titers decline over time rather than stay up. Now, it means a couple of things. It means that something's bad with the underlying lymphocytes that are responsible for maintaining that titer response. But it also suggests that if you support the immune system with NK cells, which are a critical part of that handshake in the immune system to produce um, antibodies, we might be able to support uh, titers much longer. And that's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, maintaining titers after COVID infection means that you're probably capable of resisting reinfection. That's number one, right? Number two is that maintaining titers over a prolonged period of time makes those patients good convalescent plasma donors, right? Um, and the, the ability to maintain those, those, um, uh, those antibodies over a protracted period of time uh, allows you to have defense potentially over mutated versions of the virus as well. So um, we're, we're very excited. We're, like I said, we're, we're treating patients now with COVID-19 
with um, CYNK001, which is the designation for our investigational placental NK cell. Um, the product is delivered via intravenous infusion, so it's very simple. It's, it's cells suspended in a vehicle delivered via an, an IV, so it's something that can be deployed in the emergency room, in a clinic, in the ICU, without a significant technological hurdle. Um, and we're optimistic that we're going to see uh, not just that this is safe and well tolerated, because our clinical experience with the product thus, thus far is that it's very well tolerated, uh, but that we're also going to be able to change the natural history of this disease. Um, and we're looking at things like getting rid of, you know, clearing the virus. We're looking at, at overall outcome, uh, uh, time to recovery. And then we're also going to be looking at can the patients who got the NK cells and recovered, do they maintain their tigers? So that's where we are, and I'm very optimistic. And as Frank said earlier, I've always been a believer that we're going to innovate our way out of this crisis. You know, this country is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, an innovation engine for the world. And um, I, think, I think immunotherapy is just one of those fertile innovation territories that we're operating in. And thank you for that, Bob. Tell us... Uh, What's, what, give us some sense. I know you're giving us some hope here, which is wonderful, but is there timing-wise, uh, what are we talking about as far as NK you know, cells? Uh, what, what are we thinking here? So, you know, I, I know what's, what's on everybody's mind is what is it going to take for us to feel confident enough that we have our, our, our arms around this particular crisis so we can take care of people and, and um, convert people from those who need to be on ventilators, who have a high mortality, to those who can um, uh, be, be ill, but, but tolerate that illness and recover. Um, and so we're looking for evidence that a therapy can do that. Now, um, you, you know me, Jim, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I'm a, I'm a pathological optimist. Um, I think that the, the FDA and other agencies um, that we're working with quite closely um, are very good right now at looking carefully at data, even preliminary data, um, and analyzing it to look at the safety profiles and the amplitude of benefit so that, so that they can move towards approving products early that can be introduced into the fight. We, we, we saw that with remdesivir. Um, uh, we saw that with the early willingness to use hydroxychloroquine, which I think has, with, I think it has a role early on. Um, and I think that, that in the cell therapy space, I'm very confident that, the, that our partners at the FDA are going to be right alongside us, looking very carefully at the data, the clinical data, and, and any evidence that we are changing that natural history is going to uh, get the support and, and help hasten the availability of these products for the treatment of the disease. Um, the nice thing about the immunotherapy uh, opportunity or angle is that this is a highly scalable, easily deployable um, approach to treating coronavirus uh, COVID-19. Um, We've already proven we can 
mass-produced cellular products from the placenta. Um, we've got the supply chain uh, of the raw materials uh, well under control so that we can, we can scale up uh, efficiently and rapidly. Um, the economics are going to be very appealing when you look at the overall cost of managing this illness. Um, I believe the responses are going to permit durability because as I, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that we're going to see that when you get uh, an immunotherapy, it not only supports your acute recovery, but also helps maintain your long-term resistance. Um, and, and we're also introducing other tools in the fight like placental pluripotent stem cells that can be used in the recovery phase to support um, uh, restoration of pulmonary function, cardiovascular function, and so on. Um, so I'm optimistic. That being said, that being said, I think there's reason for optimism that's outside of even the therapeutic uh, development uh, process. Um, you know, the virus is showing evidence of being um, uh, environmentally cleared under conditions, seasonal conditions that we're beginning to enter into. Um, you saw the Department of Homeland Security studies and studies from some of the national laboratories which show that this virus is in fact not that stable on surfaces or in the air, particularly in warmer conditions, um, uh, drier conditions, and in and in um, in the presence of certain uh, electromagnetic radiation like UV UVC uh, ultraviolet C, um, that to me is really encouraging. It means that we we may have a hiatus here where we get enough clearance of uh, the virus from the environment that the infection and transmission rates drop down, and that the number to recover and our our uh, our kind of herd immunity or community immunity those numbers increase, and so any subsequent wave will not nearly be as damaging because we've selected for um, the the more resistant, healthier population to kind of kind of uh, uh, stand up and, and, and protect the rest of the environment. Um, that being said, we're learning more and more and more about what the risk factors are, the contributing risk factors to bad outcome. We know that obesity plays a role. Um, we know that being male is a risk factor. Um, we know that underlying illnesses like diabetes uh, and, and hypertension appear to be contributing to bad outcome. Uh, and we know that obviously age is a contributing factor. That means we can begin to apply that knowledge in a rational design for what I call community reentry. Staged community reentry, in my mind, makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, um, my, my friend Mark Benioff from um, uh, Salesforce.com um, said it's time for us to, to build in a staged approach so that we don't continue to damage the economy. Because remember, the economy will be the engine to support innovation going forward, okay? We can't bankrupt this country because it's going to, it's going to damage our ability to respond with innovation and invention. We need a healthy economy to do that. Um, so uh, the, if you look at the data, okay, the hard data, and by the way, we have to be also skeptical that 
in a crisis, sometimes we apply statistical analyses that are biased. Um, uh, you know, I'm concerned that some of the numbers we're talking about, some of the, the fatalities and so on and so forth that are being chalked up to COVID-19, um, their fatalities and their tragic nonetheless, I don't know if, if, if COVID-19 was truly the causative factor or, or, or was it a minor contributor? Was it just happened to be a bystander of the, of the fatality? I don't know yet. That stuff we really need to look at. And, and as, a, um, as a guy who's, who, who has some training in pathology, you, you're, often, you're often fooled uh, in the long run by what the data actually says. But then the, the, the second important thing is that um, we, we know that in the below 60 age group, the disease has a very, um, very small uh, lethality rate. And in the below 25, below 20 age group, the, the lethality rate is extremely, extremely low. Um, now, here's the reality. No one wants to even consider that uh, a young person could get infected and die from COVID-19. But at the same time, you have to consider the long-term impact of isolation and quarantine on that same population. Um, for those of us who have kids at home, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mental mental health component we've got to be considering here. Um, and, and, and I think that uh, there are ways to identify kids at risk. There are ways of being really vigilant about identifying and responding. If you, if you identify the development of this illness early and intervene early, the outcomes are very good. So I think that it's time for a staged community reentry program where we continue to have protections for those at risk. We begin to phase out some of these other measures that are being taken, and we allow people in the low-risk groups to get back to work and back to school, and we, and we keep an eye on things, okay? And we watch very vigilantly, and we respond quickly. I think that is the rational way to, uh, to get ourselves uh, back to normal. Thanks for that, Bob. Now, before we move on to uh, more que questions, one of them was, give us a best case and worst case just for NK cells. You know, I know I don't want to do forecasting. I know this is not your job, but just so we can have some sense of, of hope, you know. Timing-wise? Yes. <clears throat> so... I think um, in our study, our, our, our initial study is 86 patients um, that we should be completing, uh, completing enrollment and, and following these patients by, uh, by August. Um, if that data is compelling, we could have a breakpoint with, with our regulatory partners and with the scientific and clinical communities like remdesivir that could in fact um, dramatically expedite entry of this product into the treatment of the disease. So best case scenario is we treat, we treat 86 patients and of the 86 patients who get the product, you know, very high number do really, really well. And they show biological evidence of a clinically meaningful response, a clinically meaningful benefit. So for example, they clear virus, uh, 
They don't. They don't require. They don't go on to requiring ventilation. Um, they 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 get out of the hospital faster and they maintain their titers. We if we show stuff like that in a significant number of patients early on, I know it's going to excite um, uh, uh, the teams at the FDA, CDC, HHS, and they can help expedite and speed up the availability of these products either in in, in broadly deployed investigational programs or with some type of a provisional approval or a full all-out approval. Best case scenario is by late summer, we may know that, we may have that information, okay? And, and we're working hard to even speed that up. Um, worst case scenario is we have to go through the series of, of, of full clinical trials looking for subtle benefits. Um, we may have to do some dose ranging and dose finding and things like that. And then that would take us longer probably to the end of the year, early 2021, before we'd really have a sense of whether or not we've got a, we've got a potential winner here or not. Um, the nice thing about, about the NK uh, product is that first and foremost, it's one size fits all, okay? It's off the shelf. It has a shelf life that's measured in decades because this is a cryopreserved product that can be around next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, okay? Uh, the cryopreserved cells are incredibly stable in long-term storage. So the investment in building a stockpile of a product like this for this pandemic and for potentially future pandemics, I think is very, very sensible. Um, but, but in addition to the natural killer cells, we're also, we've also filed an IND for placental pluripotent cells to be used to also support things. And we're even exploring the possibility that NK cells, placental pluripotent cells, and maybe other therapies in combination is, is the recipe for success here. You gotta keep your eyes open. You gotta be a very, very um, uh, uh, dynamic observer. Um, and you have to be creative and innovative on how you, how you design the treatment regimen to maximize the effect. No two patients are going to be the same. Um, as you know, patients are going to enter this, this uh, disease with very varying states of underlying physiologic health. We need to understand that. We need to engage, you know, the brilliant folks out there in the intelligence and, and inf information systems world like Frank and, and our other friends. We need to be using machine learning and, and AI to, to interrogate data about the patients, their response to therapies and their outcomes. And we need, the, we need to use those types of tools to better, better focus and target our strategies to treat the disease. Well, that is very encouraging, Bob. Thank you for that update. Now, what about the rest of the industry? Uh, there's several questions about vaccines um, and other treatments uh, or treatments as, as an aside. What can you tell us about this race to vaccinate and to treat. Give us um, some sense from your purview, since you have, you're in touch with, with the whole industry all the time. So this is what I can say. We are better prepared to develop vaccine technology and novel vaccine technology than ever before. There are great companies out there, uh, some with, with very novel platform plays uh, to produce vaccines. There's, um, uh, there's Moderna. Um, my, um, uh, I've, got, I've got friends with a, with a uh, 
which has got a, a remarkable vaccine play as well. Um, there are the, the big pharma companies in the vaccine space are all rushing to apply their traditional approaches to producing a vaccine. So I, I think we're ne we've never been better prepared to create a vaccine against a disease. I, I do want to caution a little bit because, um, to my knowledge, coronavirus is, is a difficult um, virus to develop a vaccine for. Um, I don't think we've had a lot of success in developing vaccines for a lot of these uh, agents, a lot of these pathogens. I know that we were unable to produce a vaccine against uh, the original SARS virus. Uh, or the MERS virus. Um, vaccines haven't been developed against Ebola, for example, uh, which is an immunotoxic um, uh, vac uh, uh, virus. Um, so as much as we are hopeful that vaccines are going to be, uh, be available to us and work, um, I want us to also recognize that, that as optimistic as we can be, we need to pay attention to therapeutics. Um, I'm convinced that, that what separates that the people who get through this without a problem and the people who don't get through this well is the immune system, okay? Just like Jim Allison, Nobel Prize winner, uh, uh, um, uh, Carl June and others have shown, the immune system is essential to getting through cancer, right? We have to consider what are we doing to destroy our immune systems, okay? What are we doing? What do we have to do to overall enhance the quality of our immune system during our lifetime? And what tools can we bring to bear uh, to, to enhance uh, immune response to pathogens like COVID-19? And what, can, what tools can we bring into the fight which will give us a, a window of resistance so that our own adaptive systems have a chance to combat the disease? You know, I... Um, you may have seen uh, Dr. Fauci talks about, talked about flattening the curve early on. The whole strategy there is that you, do, you take a measure that will lower the rate of growth of a, of a, um, uh, of a factor which has a, has a potential to overwhelm a system, right? In the case of Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci's strategy, change the rate of people getting sick infected, sick, and needing hospitalization so you don't overwhelm the healthcare system, right? Flattening the curve has a clear uh, rationale there. Well, in my mind, flattening the immunologic curve means when people get infected and their natural killer cell response is trying to knock down that viral burden to give the adaptive immune system a chance to respond, anything we can do to lower that, that rise in viral load to give the patient's own immune system or a supported immune system a chance to do its job is necessary. So we flatten the immunologic curve when we introduce products like natural killer cells. Got it. So two questions. Uh, one focus on where is the best place to find information on COVID-19, unbiased information. And then the other one was, where do you see the end game? Whatever that, you know, uh, you know however you want to answer that. Uh, oh, the best place to get information about COVID-19 is obviously my Twitter, my Twitter account, you know, uh, at, Hariri, at Hariri Robert uh, uh, on Twitter. No, I'm only kidding. I, I, look, I, I, I'm, I'm an opinionated guy. I've got my view on things. 
and I and I, I try and share that with uh, folks out there. Um, but I'm but I'm keeping an eye on what's out there, and I and I try and be uh, relatively impartial and 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 talk about what other people are seeing as well as what I think is going on. The the resources that are available today for COVID-19 are vast. Okay, I I pay a lot of attention to the CDC's website, and I follow a lot of what they're talking about. I also I also believe it or not, I follow a lot of the news that's coming from the financial community who are following companies that are in the fight against COVID-19. And um, I, I direct myself to the corporate websites of companies like Moderna, um, uh, like Mesoblast, uh, um, in, in order to better understand, like Pfizer, j j in order to better understand uh, what they're doing uh, to, uh, to, to accelerate and advance their technologies uh, in the um, in the fight, um, the the big companies, the big pharma companies, are you know, they're doing an amazing, amazing job, um, and they have the resources to bring to bear. The um, uh, the, the the truth is that we're going to see breakthroughs from little companies, little developmental stage companies that have a novel approach to things, and I'm I'm hopeful that a lot of those little companies come into the viewfinder of some of the big pharma companies in order to get the resources to bring to bear. And then the last plug I'm going to make is this, Jim, and you're probably one of the guys who can help me do it. Um, I think it's time for a Manhattan Project approach to COVID-19. Okay. During World War II, um, we recognize that to protect the world from, uh, from the, 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 the fascist uh, uh, explosion was going to require the development of weapon systems that were um, uh, a, a quantum advance from conventional. Likewise, to protect us from this pandemic virus, we're going to have to develop treatment strategies, vaccines that are a quantum advance from where we are. I, I, I'm a very, as you know, Joe, I'm a very inclusive, collaborative kind of guy. I, I really believe that the time is now for there to be a true Manhattan Project approach, where it's not this company competing against this company, but it's these companies coming together under some type of an umbrella um, a collaborative uh, mandate that says, look, if we, if we actually um, open our kimonos to each other about what we're seeing in the laboratory and in the clinic, we'll probably be able to fine tune a strategy that works maybe with combination approaches, or maybe we're going to be better identifying the real win. So, so I would like to see a Manhattan project around COVID-19. We'll call it the, um, we'll call it the Princeton project. <laughs> well, you know, I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, Bob, because, uh, and that's the natural leader role of the United States, right? Is to really uh, bring people together and collaborate to, uh, to, to make huge impact. Now, we're running out of time. I just got a nice comment slash uh, from a uh, question from someone who said, you are so articulate, you should be on 60 Minutes. Your story and your insights have to be told. So 60 Minutes is up next, okay? We'll have to get you on to that. Now, um, clearly there's, there's a couple more questions, but um, I do wanna get to one or two other things. Let's see. Um, Let's see. The press is talking about the fact that patients are potentially being reinfected. Thoughts? Well, that's what I was talking about before, right? Um, 
we're worried, I'm really worried that, that the people who are recovering, if they're recovering because they just had just enough adaptive immunity to clear the virus, but they can't maintain their antibody titers against COVID-19, they might in fact be subject to reinfection. It's one of the reasons why we think the immunotherapy approach where we're supplementing the immune system with NK cells and so on will help maintain and support um, uh, prolonged and rising titers against the virus. So that's a really good question. We don't know yet what's the underlying mechanism of reinfection, but if the observations I've heard of thus far are true, that people get titers and then the titers drop, that suggests that something damaged the underlying immune system, the T cells and B cells and so on, and that those cells are no longer doing their job at maintaining um, resistance to the disease. It's something we're looking very carefully at. So Bob, I wanna make sure Thank you for explaining that. First of all, I want to make sure we talk about your day job, which is uh, making us all live a lot longer. Because I remember the last time we met this past fall, you said, I'm going to live for another 50 years. And I, I held on to that. And I still am in spite of this darn virus. Um, so tell us, just make sure people know about your day job, what cellularity does, and what, you know, what more hope you can give us for longevity. So first of all, Jim, did I tell you, you look, you look great. You look younger since I saw you last. So you're doing something right. Um, you know, w- one thing, you know, I've been, I've been in the cell therapy business for 25 years. And, and I became intrigued by the placenta and the, the regenerative power of the placenta a long time ago. But I wasn't the first guy. Um, a lot of people have figured this out and, and recognized that there's something unique. By the way, um, the Nazca Indians thousands of years ago um, actually made stone carvings where they where they depicted the use of the placenta as a therapeutic uh, and, and and an anti-aging uh, um, uh, tool. So you know, listen, I am uh, thank God the patent office didn't consider that prior art. Um, but um, here's what we know: we know that um, that stem cells are necessary. Healthy stem cells are necessary to drive the ongoing renovation. And, and reparative processes that keep our tissues and organs um, in a youthful phenotype. It shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that, that we have stem cells that are in our body in various compartments that are continually turning over and responsible for, for t- renovating us in, re- in response to injury, aging, etc. That's, that's an exhaustible supply. Um, two things happen to our stem cell reservoirs over time. The number of cells declines and the quality of those cells declines as well. Now, we were intrigued because, as you you know, the first way I entered into the cell therapy business was to bank stem cells from newborns. And, you know, it was very clear to me, because I've got my kids' cells banked, that storing away cells from birth in cryopreservation, you're putting these cells in suspended animation. And if you call upon them later in life, it's like you're getting a shot of yourself at birth. Okay. What person doesn't want to have their skin or their, or their muscles or their bones to have the youthful form uh, they did early in life. So the concept of using cells to recharge the regenerative engine in our body uh, 
is very logical to a lot of us. Now, we did some early experiments many, many years ago just as a lark. Okay, I, um, I, was, I was intrigued by the same stuff that intrigued people like Peter Thiel, you know, the, who did the parabiosis experiments. I was intrigued. And by the way, 35 years ago, I published a study about aging and arteriosclerosis where I was transplanting blood vessels from old animals into young animals and vice versa and found that the young environment made the old blood vessel young again, rejuvenated. So, I, so 35 years ago, before I knew what the hell was going on, I actually did some of that work. But what we, what we did in, these, in, in this kind of you know, skunk works experiment was we collected placental stem cells from experimental animals at birth, processed them and stored them away, and then gave the animals back doses of their own cells as they aged. And what we saw was that the animals who got back their cells from the time they reached sexual maturity till death lived 40% longer than their untreated littermates. Okay? That was pretty cool. And by the way, that same experiment's been done by at least five or six other investigators, and they saw the same thing. Okay? Young cells into an old system has a, has a benefit for that old system. So do I think that we're going we're gonna, to, do we have the answers here? I, we don't have the answers yet, but we do know that, um, that certain functions decline with age that can be traced back to the synthetic integrity of our cells. And the synthetic integrity of our cells is driven by the, the DNA, which is accessible to transcription factors, can be read and turned into proteins. Those things get damaged over time, and they also change as you go from an undifferentiated stem cell to a differentiated, specialized, mature cell. If I can put more, more undifferentiated cells into an aging system so they can mature and maintain that synthetic repertoire so that all the proteins you need are being made, not just a small number, I think it will have functional, functional effects. Best evidence of that is in the skin. Um, our, our DNA encodes for many, many different kinds of collagen over 20 different forms of collagen. But if you, and if you look at the skin of a, of a newborn, you'll find all 20 different forms of collagen. But if you look at the skin of an elderly person, they're only producing about seven or eight of those different collagens, which means that some of the collagen genes are being silenced and they're being silenced either as a consequence of differentiation to a terminal form, or they're being silenced because they're being damaged. The DNA to encode for them is being damaged. We don't know. But I believe that if I can give you, if I could give you a hundred million uh, baby Jim Baroud cells uh, every year, those cells would actually fit you perfectly and they would contribute to restoring some of the functionality that you lose in the cells that age. And that's a concept that is central to the application of cellular medicine to maintaining human performance. I don't like to say anti-aging. I don't believe in that. I think it is about maintaining human performance. And I'll give you this one thing. If I ask an audience, how many of you want to live to 150? Not many people raise their hand because the idea of 150 isn't very attractive. But if I say, how many of you want to live another 70 years exactly the way you are right now? Everybody raises their hand. Right? So it's about preservation of human performance. Great. 
Well, you know, that we're going to have to keep that for another uh, session, Bob, because that is super fascinating. I want to thank, uh, on behalf of me and, and Frank D'Souza, I want to thank you for coming on today to educate us all, give us some more hope, um, and, and tell us about your efforts to fight this, this terrible uh, virus. And again, on behalf of, of the community, if there's anything we can do to help you uh, in this fight, please let us know. Thank you, Jim. Great to see you. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.